He was the pastor here in early 80s, is that right? From mm. 82 to 87. 82 to 87. So, uh, and pastored here and just had a great pulpit ministry among us. And it's great to have him back and, and have him as our keynote speaker here for the last Sunday of our missions conference. And it's awesome. Uh, any kids here, kindergarten to second grade, can go to Children's Church who'd like to be dismissed to Children's Church. And John, it's great to have you with us. Can we just welcome John Wood back to the pulpit? Last time I spoke in this pulpit, I didn't need reading glasses, and I seem to have lost mine. So if I'm squinting, uh, I'm not ready to pass out. I'm trying to see the words. It is so good to be back with you and to see the way that the Lord has blessed this congregation. Uh, it's exciting to hear of your plans and to see the mission uh, that God's given you, not just here on the South Shore, but throughout the world. And so I'm delighted to be back with you, grateful for the opportunity, and so grateful for, to the Lord for calling Jeremy here and uh, so owning his ministry among you. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for this time of worship, of lifting up our hearts and hands and voices, and giving praise and honor to you who alone deserve to receive such praise. And yet, in the wonder and majesty of your love toward us, you've not only made us your children, but you have destined us for glory. And even now that we are little jars of clay with cracks and chips and broken places. You want to be shining that glory through us. And I pray that, that this morning, as you speak your word to us, that I will rightly disappear and that you'll minister to my heart, to our hearts. And then as we go to the table, feed us on all of the benefits of our salvation in Christ our King. So come, Holy Spirit. Uh, even as you've visited us in the music and the word as we've sung it, so minister to our hearts now through this written word. In Jesus' name, amen. It was uh, great fun to be with you last night and uh, uh, recognize old friends and make some new. And uh, for Marianne and me, it's also been sweet to drive uh, up and down this street that uh, Eleanor Roosevelt called the most beautiful street in all America and uh, see it when its leaves are uh, in such glorious color. And it is good to be able to open God's Word with you now, and I'd invite you to turn to John chapter 17. This uh, that is often called the Holy of Holies of the Gospels because here we see Jesus' heart uh, Jesus, in the Gospel according to John, came into the world to minister to the world. As John said at the beginning, the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And for uh, those, uh, all those stories that John recorded for us, uh, up through chapter 12, Jesus was ministering to the world, but at the end of chapter 12, he had said what he had to say to the world, had done what he had to do in the world, except that final act for which he'd come. And he turned to his disciples. In chapters 13 through 16, Jesus is giving his final instructions to his disciples. And now in John chapter 17, he's done with his instruction to his disciples, and he turns and lifts up his face 
to his father. And these are the final words of Jesus before his arrest and trial, passion, crucifixion, and victory. And so if you are a believer, if you are a disciple of Jesus, this is a good place to go frequently and simply read and, and chew it, meditate on it, pray it. Uh, Eugene Peterson's beautiful expression, ask the Spirit of God to turn your eyes into ears so that you are not just reading, but you are hearing. You're there with them again and hearing Jesus. Pour out his heart to his Father. Because here we see what was most on his heart before he gave himself for us. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, perhaps you are just curious about Jesus. You want to find out more. Maybe you've seen something in the lives of Christians that has drawn you and you wonder what it is that we believe. Or perhaps you're here at... The invitation of a friend. Perhaps you're here because uh, there's some girl in the church you're hoping to uh, get to know. I mean, we come to church for all kinds of reasons. But don't miss the opportunity in this to see something of the heart of this one whom Christians throughout the world call Lord and, and worship. I'm not going to read the entire chapter. It's rather long. I'm going to read the middle portions. It is a, a prayer in three parts in the opening Five verses, Jesus prays for himself, and his prayer essentially is that the Father will again grant him that glory that he had laid aside in coming and becoming one of us. And prays that he'll be glorified on the cross and glorified in his victory, and he prays it for the sake of the Father's glory. Everything that he does is for the Father. At the end of the prayer, the final verses, it's almost as though someone in a movie, or pretend you're reading a novel and all of a sudden the Lead character says, if I were reading it, yeah, I'm talking about you, John Wood. And I jump. I mean, in the final verses of his prayer, Jesus says, now I'm not going to just pray for those here with me, but for all of them down through the ages who believe in me because of their testimony. He's praying for us. That's his last prayer. But in the middle, the part I'm going to read, he is praying for his disciples. And uh, heed this well. And ask yourself, even as we read it, Do I ever pray like this? Could I pray like this? I'm going to try to see this now. Beginning with verse 6 of chapter 17. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know everything that you've given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they believe that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I'm glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction. He's referring, of course, to Judas Iscariot. That the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, And the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. 
I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. The Gospel of Christ. Thanks be to God. If you are reading along in the same translation I'm using, the ESV, you'll notice I changed one word in the final sentence where Jesus says, I consecrated myself that they may be sanctified. I changed it to sanctified because it's the same word in the Greek. And hopefully if I ever get there this morning, I'll I'll explain why. Um, There's obviously so much here Uh, This is so rich, one could spend uh, more than a series of sermons on it and still uh, still not begin to plumb the deepest parts of it. But let me, on this final morning of your mission conference, where you've declared a theme from Isaiah 6, Here am I, Lord, send me, encourage you to think about really three questions that I would pose to you as a result of the text and then ask you to do what I've been doing as I've been uh, reading it over this week and praying it into my own heart and seeking to hear what Jesus is saying to me, what His Spirit is saying to me through it. Uh, and, And my concern is this. As I read this prayer, I am struck at the deep seriousness of Jesus in thinking of those whom he has been discipling, and of the accountable relationship that he has to his Father for what he's done with the ministry entrusted to him. Uh, Jesus saw his ministry always in the most blood-earnest terms. And I'm not talking now of ministry in terms of professional ministry. I get paid for pastoring a church. I'm thinking in the biblical terms of every one of us, every single one of us who belong to the Lord as being entrusted with ministry, as the body of Christ being given the life and ministry of Jesus to carry to the world. And there's no setting it aside. There's no getting away from it. So, What I want to ask you first is simply this. Whom has God entrusted to you? Whom has God entrusted to you? Why do I say that? Because I've been struck just recently reading this chapter as never before by the, at least on the face of it, the oddness of the way that Jesus speaks of his disciples. Now, remember again how John's Gospel begins. John wants us at the beginning of the Gospel to have the highest possible view of Jesus. And so, if you were to arrange the entire Bible in chronological order, the first verse would not be Genesis 1-1, but John 1-1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then he goes on and says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then he'll identify him 
as Jesus. And so, Jesus is the one through whom all things are created. He's not only with God, toward God. Relationally, He is God. And so, He has right over all. And yet, did you notice how Jesus spoke of these disciples? Look again with me at that first verse we read, verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. You gave them to me. And they've kept your word. And then again, over, uh, if I can see it, he says it again uh, a little bit later and says, uh, you gave them to me again. All of them are yours here. Uh, Verse 10, I think. All mine are yours, yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. Just before them, he says, you've given them to me. Verse 9. Why do I emphasize this? Well, simply because I don't tend to think in those terms. I'm being very honest. I tend to think of my marriage in these terms. Marianne and I met, and we decided to get married. I'm with her because she's my choice. I'm with her because... I'm her her choice. We decided to have this many kids. Then we decided we had a big enough family, we stopped. I decided where to live. I decided who my neighbors are. I get to hire at the church, so I decide who I work with. I decide who my friends are. I choose them. Some people I want to get to know, some people I don't. I'm a little bit, I confess, too much like Tony Campolo, who said that when he's flying on an airplane and somebody asks him what he does, if he wants to talk to them, he says, I'm a teacher. If he doesn't want to talk to them, he says, I'm an evangelist. You know, I I arrange my life like that. I kind of decide whom I'm going to be related to, whom I'm going to spend time with. And I go through life thinking in terms of my choices. And of course, biblically, my choices are real, but there is another at work who is sovereign, who is behind, under, around these choices I am making and who is determined. Those whom He has entrusted to me I didn't just make this marriage. God entrusted this person to me. We didn't just decide how many children we were going to have. God entrusted these children to us. My neighbors, my friends, my fellow workers, my neighbor. Remember the parable. The one who is there before me in the road. Whom has God entrusted to you? And do you take that mission that He's entrusted to you of being God with skin, continuing the incarnation as a part of the body of Christ, carrying the grace and the love and the mercy of God to those whom He has entrusted to you, not just in the churchly religious times, no, in in all of the moments of the day, in the way we speak, in the way that we love them, are we as blood-earnest as Jesus about the ministry that God has entrusted to us in the people in our lives? So I, I ask you that. Whom has God entrusted to you? It may be that person you work with whom you th- who you think could make you happiest by disappearing from your life. That person that is the greatest irritant. You know, we preachers get together sometimes. Jeremy wouldn't. He's a much nicer guy than I. But sometimes, you know, we get together and somebody will say, how's Cedar Springs? How are things going? And, you know, I'll flippantly say, oh, we don't have any problems. A few strategic funerals wouldn't solve. And, you know, and uh, 
Of course, I'm sure the congregation thinks one would do quite nicely. We'd all do. <laughs> but we, we see people as problems, difficulties, pains in, in the neck. Um, and God says, I've entrusted, I have entrusted this one to you. In marriages, what a difference it would make if instead of seeing this as somebody who somewhere in the back I thought promised to meet my needs, if instead we were saying, this is the closest one whom God has entrusted to me. This is my first mission. To love my spouse, if you're married, or to love my children or my brothers and sisters those I'm right. You get the point. I won't belabor it anymore. But the reason that Jesus did this is because he realized what we are. He realized what his disciples were. Uh, I don't know if you recently saw Ken Burns' uh, uh, wonderful PBS uh, series on the national parks, but uh, it was, as is, I think, all of Burns' work. Uh, uh, absolutely glorious and wonderful in a very sort of slow way. Uh, but, uh, I mean, it just, again, made us say, we've got to get to Yellowstone. We live uh, right on the edge of the Smoky Mountains, so I get up to the Smokies as often as I can. I love to hike up there. And we have the sense of the everlasting hills, of this great creation, these forests that will still be here after I'm gone. My life is but a vapor. And there is this whole side of the biblical revelation that does speak of us that way. We're here for a moment. We're gone. We're like the grass that withers, passes away. and There are the eternal mountains. But then we step back and see from God's perspective. And all of this, this cosmos, is passing away. Nothing will hold back the entropy of the sun when God lets it go and prepares to end this story and make all things new, and the new heavens, the new earth. And no one, I think, has, has captured this more eloquently than C.S. Lewis at the end of a sermon that he preached at St. Mary's Church, Oxford, called The Weight of Glory. Lewis ended by saying, there are no ordinary people. He said, even the most simple, boring person you meet today, the most uninteresting person you meet, will one day be either a being so glorious that if you could see that being now, you would be tempted to fall down and worship, or a being of such horror that you see now only in nightmares, an immortal horror. And then he said this, every day we are helping one another toward one or the other of those ends. And it is with that kind of seriousness, he said, that we should conduct all of our friendships, all of our play, all of our work, all of our relating one to another. Jesus saw that. He said, Father, these are yours. You've entrusted them to me. And I want them to share both my glory and my joy. So the first question is, whom has God entrusted to you? And at the end of this mission week, before you start thinking in terms of God drawing me out to a distant place in another culture, ask whether or not you've even identified your ministry right here in your own home, your own neighborhood, your own place. 
And also may I fold into that those whom God has entrusted to you. These cross-cultural missionaries whom you've pledged to support. Uh, These are tough economic times, but God's entrusted the lives and the ministries of some of these people to you. You've been walking with them over the years. You've said, we believe that God's put us together as partners in ministry. And so part of your recognizing whom God has entrusted to you is recognizing these missionaries who've been ministering to you this week. Second thing that Jesus, that I see in this prayer and becomes a question is, how have you been doing with those whom God has entrusted to you? Because I look now at what Jesus does in this prayer and He's standing before the Father reporting back on, on how He's been caring for those entrusted to Him. And He says a number of things, just three that I'll quickly underscore. First of all, He says, I've guarded them, I've kept them. I, I've tried to protect them. If you're a parent, you know something of this. Uh, there, there are, I think, two equal and opposite dangers for parents uh, spiritually, and they're much like the physical one. You've got this parent on the one hand who is always using uh, antibiotic to wipe off the doorknobs, and if anything falls on the door, no, 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 don't put that in your mouth, you're going to get sick. And of course, they raise kids with no antibodies, and you know, the first time the kid goes out into the world and someone sneezes, you've got to hospitalize the child. Uh, on the other hand, you've got parents who just, you know, I was down in town yesterday, the wind was blowing, it was raining, and here came a mom with her kid in not much more than a t-shirt and no hood over, just rain coming down on this little, looked like not much more than a newborn. And I mean, I wanted to grab her and say, what are you doing? This is flu season. The kid's probably going to be tough. Going to be a hockey player here in Hingham. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's a delicate balance. We've got to say, what is appropriate protection for my children? Well, I'm not just talking to parents. Are you recognizing your responsibility to those whom God has entrusted to you? And are you seeking appropriate ways, not to shield them from reality, but to encourage them toward the things that bring health and wholeness and discourage them from those things that cause deep brokenness? If we weren't at a mission conference and Jeremy had invited me to speak and had just said, just come and tell us what God's been showing you lately, what's fresh and new, it would have been this, and I'll, I'll really say this quickly. I think most of us evangelicals have down pretty well the whole, what we call the doctrine of justification, the fact that we're sinners, we can't make ourselves right with God. Christ came, died in our place, and in, in being born again and given this great gift of trusting in Him, repenting of sin, we now have the new beginning. We believe also that He's put His Spirit within us, as we're born again, and that His Spirit now is enabling us to live a new life. But I think for most of us, and I confess for many years, I tended to think, okay, now here I am, broken John, all my inherited brokenness, all of the the old junk that's because of my bad choices and my just being a jerk in so many different ways. I'm kind of, you know, there are nice people up here, and then uh, I'm back here, I've got further to go. Uh, and I would excuse friends. I, I had one pastor friend who's known as being pretty aggressive, and uh, a person from his church came to me and said, boy, they just had a run-in and said, you know, uh, I don't know if that guy's even saved. And I said, look, you know, you didn't know him before he was a believer. 
Uh, if, if he weren't a, I said, if he weren't a Christian, he'd be up in the steeple shooting people on their way to the parking lot. You know, he's come. But that's a misunderstanding of what God has done. Because Paul spoke of himself not as a broken Saul who was now trying to, trying to self-improve with the help of the Holy Spirit. He said, I'm crucified with Christ. I, God gets rid of sin, not by getting rid of sin, but by getting rid of sinners. He puts us to death. It isn't just that Jesus died for us. We died in Christ. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. But Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. This is such a major theme in Paul and Jesus in John 12. Unless a grain of wheat fall on the ground and die, it remains alone. It must die to bear fruit. I want to stay a seed forever. I'm a seed. My dad was a seed. My grandpa was a seed. We're seeds. That's what we are. So strap a, a big tree to my back and let me bear fruit. But I'm a, no, the seed must die. Who I was, what I was, that's got to die. And so this whole idea, when you begin discipling a new believer, when God, whether it's your child, I, I, I mentioned last night my son. I had these two daughters that were really have been great gals. Although sometimes I'm more worried for them because the elder brother in the parable was in gr- much greater danger than the younger. The younger brother knew he was lost. The elder brother didn't know it. But my son was lost, knew that he was lost, was broken. He comes out, God saves him, draws him back out of a life of such brokenness in every way you can describe. And some of the guys that were discipling him we're saying, don't give off that. You can't quit everything at once. You can't do everything at once. Just sort of begin weaning away. You know, you can continue to live in this brokenness and that. Let's pick the biggest bear and, and shoot it and work on that, and then we'll do this other. And I listened as he described this to me, and I finally said, God sometimes does that with us gently, but I think they're dead wrong. Because you've been called to newness of life. And if you set your mind not on the flesh but on the spirit... Christ will begin living through you today and you can from you don't have to grow to a certain point because you're you're over it's done with you're new and if Christ is living in you he can do today above and beyond all that you might ask or imagine by the same token I told him I've been walking with Jesus for nearly 40 years but the moment that I will turn and walk in the flesh there is no good thing in my flesh And right now, if I turn and walk in the flesh and begin setting my mind on the things of the flesh, I am a blasphemer. I am an idolater. I am a murderer. I am an adulterer. I am a thief. I am a liar. That's who John Wood is. But he's been crucified with Christ. And when my mind is set on the things of the Spirit... So you get my drift. I mean, we have a task in proclaiming, in caring in shepherding those entrusted to us and saying, Father, I want to keep them. Are you keeping, guarding in His name? That means according to His will, His purposes for them. Those whom God has entrusted to you. He said, I've given them your word. That's a key part. Are you building it into them? If you're parents again, don't leave it to the Sunday school to teach your children the things of God. Bring to church those who have God's Word deeply within them. I told you years ago, those of you who were here may remember, I was the one in my family that ran from God. 
But I'd been made as I grew up. I was in church. I was in Sunday school. Memorized large portions of Scripture. And years later, when I was running from God, when I was over in Southeast Asia, and I would be uh, going with friends places where I had no right to go and looking forward to it, suddenly unbidden would come to my mind. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And I would think, not now, Mother. Stop praying. Stop. Stop. Someone right there. You know, she was detonating those gospel charges that she'd placed here. Are you doing that? And I'm not just talking about children. All those whom God... Who is God entrusted to you? And how are you caring for them? Jesus was with adults, but he said, I've guarded them. Um, this is so important. I was, uh, a few years ago, when I had the privilege of having dinner with the patriarch of the Martoma Church, which is one of the great Eastern, uh, or we call them Oriental Orthodox churches, uh, down in Kerala province of India. Very ancient church. And he was a very gracious fellow, and he was asking me about my family. And I'd forgotten that in the Eastern Church, you can be a married priest, but not a married bishop or patriarch. So he asked me about my kids and how many kids and tell me about them and everything. And then, of course, when I finished telling about mine, I said, well, tell me about your family. Do you have children? And he smiled and said, yes. And I said, how many? And he said, 800,000. He knew those whom God had entrusted to him. Do you? Do I? Are we in blood earners? Are we protecting? Are we entrusting the word to them? And then finally Jesus said, I have sanctified myself or consecrated myself. Uh, my, I don't know, do you all use the NIV here? I took that south to a church once and they called it the Northern Invasion Version. Um, <laughs> the church I'm serving now is using the ESV, English Standard Version, which is usually much better than the NIV about not changing uh, translating the same word in the passage in different ways. But in this place, unfortunately, the ESV changes it. And the key is what Jesus is saying. Either translate it, uh, Father, consecrate them in the truth. Your word is truth. For their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be consecrated. Or you sanctified. But the key of what Jesus is saying is this. He's saying, I am not, I'm not, I've not asked anything of them that I've not been willing to expect of myself. Even as I long for them to be consecrated, I've shown them what it looks like. I've consecrated myself. Even as I've yearned for them to be sanctified, set apart for you, I've set myself apart. Jesus did that perfectly. None of us does it perfectly. But, oh, if we take it seriously, we should be striving to. There are things that I have not done Only, I wish that I could say, because I'm the child of my Heavenly Father. But I must say, there have been times in my life when the one thing that kept me was the fact that I was a father of children. And I taught my children a certain thing, and I didn't want them to have heard me teaching this and then discover that it was all a lie. And of course, God helped me. It has too many times, been hypocrisy. I used to think my kids, I used to fear that my children wouldn't listen to my preaching. I found to my chagrin, they listened very well and love preaching back to me. What I, but you said, but Jesus was able to pray this. And when you and I think in terms of those whom God has, has entrusted to us, we need to be asking about the lives we're living before them. And my prayer is often, Lord, 
Someday before I die, make me the man my children think I am. I long to be that. Do you long for those whom God has entrusted to you to say, as I see you following Christ, I want to follow Christ too. Well, all that background, I come now to the heart and I've got about five minutes left. So what is the prayer that he prayed? And the question is, how do you and I pray for those whom God has entrusted? If I'm not thinking and intentional, I tend to pray, okay, Lord, David got in touch with me and he's got this business meeting coming up in Beijing and I ask you to go before him and to prepare the way. Uh, Rachel's pregnant. We're finally getting a little girl after having all these little boy grandkids. So please keep this little girl that's growing in her, you know, and, and you know, let her be smart and beautiful and, and just like Lake, Lake Wobegon, above average, you know. And, you know, we, we pray this way. And it's okay. He's our Father. He invites us to pray. But you won't find those kinds of prayers in the Bible. Jesus says to the Father, I'm, I'm returning to you. I'm not going to be here for them. I've kept them. Now I ask you to keep them. You know what they need. But I pray that you will keep them. Do you and I pray for one another in that way? Do we pray that way for our children? I have my hopes and dreams, but Father, they don't matter at all. Maybe this sickness is something you're using to make this beloved child of mine want you more and hold the things of this life more loosely. You know what my beloved child needs. You know what this dear friend needs. You know what this fellow worker needs. Keep, keep them in your love. Keep them in your truth. Guard them. The way that Paul prayed is so convicting. You look at that prayer in Ephesians. I tend to pray such small prayers. Paul, who in the Colossians letter speaks of Jesus as the one who is filled with all the fullness of God, prays in Ephesians for the Christians at Ephesus. Fill them with all the fullness of God. Do you and I pray that way for ourselves? Do we dare? You say, how dare I pray like that? Paul immediately goes on to say, now to him, who's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we might ask or imagine, he's able to do it. How do we pray? Father, these whom you've entrusted. Do you pray for those who work with you? Do you pray for those whom you golf with or fish with or hunt with or run with or whatever it is you do? Do you pray for them as part of your regular prayer life? Do you see this as one entrusted? And you pray, Father, keep this one. I won't go back and repeat last night, but I talked about when, when God's people pray, God changes things. God hears. We don't always get to see it. But God hears and heeds and changes things. And He says, sanctify them in Your truth. Consecrate them in Your truth. Your Word is truth. Keep them. Keep them from the evil one. And then sanctify them. Make them all that they're meant to be. What God has for you and for me is so much more glorious. And most of our mission, most of our mission to the world is not what we say, but how we live. The biggest reason that people in our culture tend not to believe the Gospel of Jesus Christ is not that they don't find the Gospel compelling, but that they don't find our lives compelling. 
and where people are living Christ, loving Christ, lives set apart for His glory. Not in a, I'm not talking about a cloying, sick, silly religiosity. I'm talking about that, that Christ-like love of God, love of others. Serving the world. The religious people... Tim Keller, uh, who's at Redeemer Church in New York, and if you're not familiar with Tim's ministry, uh, God's just owned it greatly in his preaching and his writings. But Tim says, we evangelicals ought to be concerned that the people who ran to Jesus tend to run away from us. And the people who love our preaching were the ones who crucified Jesus. In other words, he's saying, we've become too religious. Why did the religious folk reject Jesus? Because they said he hangs out with all the wrong people. He should be with us. He's with the people who don't like to go to church. He's with the people who who drink and smoke and play cards and chew and you know go with girls who do. He, he, he's with that crowd and he's supposed to be with us. And so they rejected him. And Jesus told the parables that led to the parable of the elder brother who didn't understand that he was lost too. Do you and I know whom God has entrusted? Do we recognize the depth of this ministry? You and I are to live Christ to the world around us. Our Lives are so to be lived that we give reason for people to believe the gospel of grace simply by knowing us. There's nowhere except for the Christian life where this is revealed more beautifully to us than in this table and all that it represents. We tend to think of it merely as a memorial meal because Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, He quotes the words of Jesus and says, do this in remembrance of me. We have that in the Gospels. But in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that this meal is also a participation in the body and blood of Christ. In some great mystery beyond our comprehension, we spiritually, when we come to this in faith, feast on all of the benefits of our salvation. So this is for Christians. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a believer in Jesus, if you're not yet looking to Him alone for salvation, thank God you're here. Every one of us once sat where you're sitting. But don't eat this meal yet. Save it. It would be like celebrating an anniversary before the wedding. But if you're trusting in Jesus Christ alone, then come. Not because you're strong, but because you're weak. Not because you're good, but because you are in need of God's goodness and grace. Come because you love the Lord a little and long to love Him so much more. Come because He loves you and gave Himself for you.